This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Funding for this class is provided by Benjamin Arieh and family in loving memory of Raphael, son of Chacham Rabbi Chia. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg This chapter deals with the Benoni the hero of the entire Tanya, and the Alter Rebbe took a, a different approach than the classical Musr, which is basically that a person should not feel, a person should not feel bad about having certain urges and desires and uh, passions, attractions. It's all part of, of being human. It's all part of... of um, comes from the animal soul, the natural soul, the ego soul that we all have. And Alter Rebbe explains that the Benini, the average Jew, will always have some inner dissonance. There will always be an inner conflict, a part within us that's divine, that aspires for godliness, and then there's always going to be inside, inside of us a part that pulls us downward. And so a person shouldn't feel like I'm not being genuine, I'm not, I'm, I'm not being authentic. Either I'm, if I'm godly, then my entire being has to be godly. I should only feel godly things. And, um, and then when inevitably uh, this animal soul intrudes, we feel very, we feel compromised. We feel that we're not genuine. Salat Rebbe explains that if the more you understand yourself, the more you realize that we have two different soul centers within us. We have the divine soul and we have the ego. And these two different centers uh, have two different uh, drives and, the, and within the same person. So therefore, it's not within our control not to have certain urges and instincts and desires. It's part of our makeup. It's who we are. That's how God created us. But we, we are in control, though. We're in control of our behavior. But we cannot totally overcome the conflict. That we should no longer be conflicted, no longer have these desires. That's simply not within our power. What is within our power is how we behave, how we control ourselves. Do we act in it or not? So he says the Benini is one who, when it comes to action or speech or thought, he does the right thing. He follows the Torah. He does everything that he does is wholesome. He thinks like a Jew and speaks like a Jew and acts like a Jew. And now he's, we left off on page 183 that not only in matters concerning with a man and God, but also in matters concerning man and man. Because as the Rambam says, Maimonides says, in the laws of, uh, of Teshuvah, that the Torah doesn't just deal with a person's behavior between man and, man and God. 
The Torah also deals with a person's attitudes. A person has to know how to control, how to deal with his anger, his jealousies. And just like a person has to do teshuva, a negative behavior, a person also has to do soul-searching and do teshuva on our attitudes, and our jealousies, and our envies, and our um, angers, um, hatred. A person has to control himself. And not only control our behavior, but also control control our emotions, our angers. So the Bainani is one who is perfect and is able also to control themselves, and control their emotion and control themselves when it comes to matters regarding man and man. That's what we left off. So too, in matters between man and his fellow man, the Bainani will not grant expression in thought, speech, or action to any evil feelings toward his fellow. As soon as there arises from his heart to his mind any animosity or hatred, as for shown, or jealousy, anger, or a grudge, and their like, he will bar them from his mind and will refuse even to think of them. Again, the Benini cannot feel guilty and doesn't feel guilty for having grudges or for having feelings of animosity or hatred or anger or jealousy. You know, that's not in your control. You're human. You have an ego, you're human, and your ego is bruised, your ego is hurt, and you feel jealous, or you feel envy. But what it is in your control is what you do with it. The moment it enters your mind, you dismiss it. Instead of, instead of nurturing it, instead of nourishing it and uh, feeding it, you dismiss it. Because the Torah says a person should not hate. How can you control not to hate? The answer is you don't feed it, you don't, you don't nourish it. If you don't feed it, if you don't pay attention, if you don't think about it, then it'll just go away. The more you feed it, the more you pay attention to it, the more it will, it will exacerbate it. So you can't stop thinking, but you can switch channels. Stop thinking negative thoughts, think positive thoughts. As This is how the Rambam explains, is a mitzvah in the Torah, that a soldier that does, goes to battle, a Jewish soldier, when he goes to battle, it says he's not allowed to be afraid. You can't be scared. And the question is, how can a person control uh, soldiers in battle? We know many soldiers. Here we have some right, experience. When you're, when you're in a situation in battle, uh, you know, most soldiers are paralyzed. I mean, it's so terrifying. How can the Torah command someone, don't be afraid? What do you mean, don't be afraid? I am afraid. <laughs> don't be afraid. How can you command someone on, on his emotion? Either you do or you don't. You feel or you don't feel. And the Rambam explains, the Torah commands you not to think about it. Don't dwell on it. If you're going to dwell on it, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. By the time you're done, you'll start hyperventilating. You'll frighten everyone around you. The Torah says, switch thoughts. Think, why am I fighting? What do I represent? Who do I represent? I'm fighting in the name of Hashem. Hashem is with me. Think of all the Jewish heroes in the past. Think about your family. Think, of, think about who you're fighting for, the Jewish community. So if you switch channels and you don't dwell on the fear, the fear will diminish. That's one of the, the most promising cures they're working on today for cancer, is to stop the, the, the blood that nourishes cancer. Everything needs blood. Everything needs a, life, a lifeline. And they cut off the blood supply, and then the cancer shrinks. The tumor shrinks and disappears. The same thing is here. You can't control the urge. The urge is there. It's part of your makeup. You have an ego, and you're bruised, and you're hurt, and you're angry, and you feel a grudge, and you're jealous, and you're envious. That's just who we are. We can't pretend that we don't have these feelings, unless you want to live in delusions. This is who we are. But we do, are in control of, am I going to feed it? 
or I'm just going to cut off, cut off the supply line, the bloodline, and, and then it'll just shrink and diminish on its own. So the Benini, every human being, every Jew is, is in control of the expression. Do I allow it to find expression? Do I allow this urge or this uh, rage or this anger to find expression or not? I just nip it in the bud. I cut it off. I don't want to go there. I don't want to develop this further. And you just switch thoughts. That's in your control. So the moment it enters into your heart, from your heart to your mind, because it originates, this natural instinct originates from your heart, as soon as it arises from the heart to the mind, you, jealousy, anger, grudge, whatever it is, you just dismiss it. You refuse to think about it. And then he takes it even a step further. Not only to refuse to think about it, continue. On the contrary, his mind will prevail over and dominate the feelings of his heart to do the exact opposite of that which the heart desires, namely to conduct himself toward his fellow with the quality of kindness as opposed to the quality of severity where hatred and anger originate, and to display towards his fellow a disproportionate love in suffering from him to the furthest extreme. Without being provoked into anger, God forbid, or to take revenge in kind, God forbid, even without anger, but on the contrary, to repay offenders with favors. As taught in the Zohar, that we should learn from the example of Joseph's conduct with his brothers, when he repaid them for the suffering they brought upon him with kindness and favors. This is a tall order. Not only, not to get angry, someone that causes you to get angry, the person hurt you or harmed you, and you have every reason and every right to get angry, not only should you control yourself, you can control your anger and not get angry. Control your grudge, your rage, or your envy, or your jealousy, but even more so, you should actually repay them with kindness. They hurt you, repay them with kindness. And he says you should, you should suffer from them even to the furthest extreme. In other words, the other person is harming you, and yet you repay them with kindness. Not only shouldn't, shouldn't you allow yourself to be provoked into anger, respond fire with fire, to take revenge, but on the contrary, to repay others with favors. Where do we find such a behavior? See, we find it by the Torah portion that we just read last week, the way Yosef behaved with his brothers. What did they do to Yosef? They, they left him to die. They threw him into the pit, a pit full, full of snakes could have died. It was a miracle he didn't die. And then they sold him into slavery. And they had no idea what happened. As far as they were concerned, he's gone forever. Slavery. All bets are off. Can you imagine? The youngest, the beloved, the favorite one, the oldest of the beloved, Rachel. Here they tore him away from his beloved parent, his beloved father. And they treated him cruelly. He begged, he pleaded. They totally ignored him. All of his brothers ganged up against him. Is there anyone in the world that has a right to be angry, to be a grudge, deprived him of the best years of his life, torn away from his family? It was only by miracle that he ended up being 
Yosef HaTzadik, Yosef the king. Is anyone in the world that has a right to bear a grudge and to be angry? It's Yosef. Yet how did Yosef repay his brothers? Did he bear a grudge? Was he angry? No. He helped them settle in Goshen, the best of the land of Egypt, in the Upper East Side of Egypt. <laughs> he took care of them. He provided all their needs, treated them royally. And, and it was genuine. He, this, is, this was his behavior. This was his attitude to his own brothers. Totally kind and gentle. So you see, the Torah is giving us an example. Torah is not just a storybook. Torah is giving us an example. Torah is teaching us. Yosef, the story of Yosef is teaching us how a Jew is supposed to behave to those who mistreat you. It's one thing when the Torah says, love your fellow Jew like yourself. It's easy to love someone who's lovable. You don't need a commandment to love someone who's lovable. When it says, love your fellow Jew like yourself, it's to love someone who's not lovable. And still you have to love them like you love yourself. So the Torah is giving us an example. Look how Yosef treated his brothers who totally mistreated him, who acted cruelly, and basically sentenced him to die, to death, left him to die. And yet Yosef was not angry, didn't bear a grudge, and he treated them royally. This is how the Torah is teaching us. This is how a Jew, this is what loving your fellow Jew like yourself means. Even loving someone who's not lovable, who, who behaved erroneously towards you, they were wrong, who behaved egregiously against you, and yet, not only, don't you be angry, but on the contrary, you have to overcome your instinct, overcome your natural urge, and treat them kindly and gently. We see this from Yesu, but it's not just we see this from Yesu. The story of Yosef also gives us the reasoning behind this behavior. What kind of behavior is this? Why should I, someone who's mistreating, why should I treat him gently and kindly? Why should I love someone who's, who's acting in an unlo- unlovable way? It makes it so difficult for me to love. Why should I not only not lose my temper, I should actually treat them kindly. And I should suffer from them to the furthest, to the furthest extreme. And I should display a disproportionate love towards them. Someone who's not deserving of love. What's the rationale behind this? What's the reasoning behind it? It's enough if I don't get angry. Because that's about me. Why should I get angry? Just because the other person is acting miserably, why should I hurt myself and get angry? Why should I allow myself to fall into that trap? So I understand that I should restrain myself, not get angry, not be jealous, etc., but why should I treat him well, treat him well, and repay, repay him with kindness? And the answer is in, is in the story of Yosef. What does Yosef tell the brothers? Yosef tells them, what? Divine problem. Exactly. He says, you sent me here. God sent me. Look what happened as a result of your, of your deed. You thought it was a misdeed. But look at what happened as a result. Something so positive, something so powerful resulted from all of this that he ended up being the viceroy, king of the world. So he's, he tells the brothers, you didn't send me here, God sent me. In other words, you were messengers of God. And this, this explains why the Torah expects of us that we should behave like Yosef. That Yosef treated them royally, gently. Why? 
because this is a very basic principle in Jewish belief. The idea that a person has freedom of choice is a very limited, is very limited. A person's freedom of choice, our arena of freedom of choice, only affects things that concern us. Anything that affects another person, we don't have freedom of choice. We don't have the freedom of choice to lift a pinky against another person, to harm another person, to hurt another person. Our freedom of choice is only limited, restricted to our own arena, to our own moral decisions. But unless it was decreed in heaven that this individual should experience pain or suffering, there's no force in this universe. No one can lift a pinky unless it was decreed in heaven. So just because you are rotten and you make an immoral decision to harm or hurt another person, unless it was decreed in heaven that this person should be hurt, you couldn't hurt or harm them or inconvenience them or cause them aggravation or pain. It must have been decreed in heaven. Therefore, the Torah says, as we're going to learn later on in the Tanya, that a person is not allowed to get angry. The Torah says a person who, uses, who loses his rage, it's the equivalent of idolatry. There are very few things that the Torah compares to idolatry. Idolatry is the ultimate. No, no. And here the Torah compares losing your temper to idolatry. What's the connection to losing your temper to idolatry? Because why do you lose your temper? You're angry at that person. That person hurt me. That person harmed me. That person, that person harmed me? That person hurt me? That person has no control. He doesn't have the power to harm me or hurt me. If there's harm or hurt, it comes directly from Hashem. It means Hashem wanted me to experience it. So it's between me and God, not the other person. The other person is just a messenger. He is nothing. He's just a tool. Therefore, it's directly between me and Hashem. Now, that person, it doesn't exempt the person from, from uh, repenting or from mending his own ways because he doesn't know that he's acting as Hashem's agent. He chose to harm the other person because he's a miserable, rotten human being. And he made a miserable, rotten choice to hurt another person, to lift a pinky against another person. He's a Russia. A Jew lifts a hand against another Jew, even if you don't touch him. You're just lifting your hand. You're already called a Russian. It's a question whether you're even a cultural witness anymore. You're not a cultural witness anymore because you're an evil person. Anyone that can lift up a hand against his fellow person is a Russia. is a wicked person. So yes, he has to take moral responsibility for his choice. But the fact of the matter is that's between him and God. But what concerns the victim is that I'm not a victim of him. I, it's directly from Hashem. So if I get angry at him, I attribute powers to this person. There's God, and then there's him. God controls 99% of the universe, but this person is in control, because he hurt me, and he chose to hurt me, and I'm angry at him. That's, that's idolatry. If you believe in God, you believe that no one can lift a pinky in this world unless Hashem chooses him. The analogy is the soul and the body. The body is a corpse. Every time you lift the hand, it's the soul that's lifting the hand. There's no movement, the slightest movement in the body without the soul. What's true on the microcosm is also true in the macrocosm. God is the soul of the world. So not only God creates the world, God is the soul of the world. No one lifts a pinky in this world unless the soul moves it. We don't see the soul. But the soul is really the mover and the shaker. There's nothing else. There's, there's no one else and there's nothing else. We just see the body. We see the symptom. Everything that happens in this world, we're just observing the symptom, the tip of the iceberg. What's really going on, it's the inner, it's the soul. No one lifts a pinky unless Hashem decrees it so. That's belief in Hashem. If you don't believe in that, that's idolatry. If you believe that anything can happen in this world, 
on its own or because of this person's immoral decision and because he chose to harm me, he was able to harm me. That's idolatry. It means you don't really believe in God. You don't believe that God is the soul of the world. That there isn't the slightest bodily movement without the soul. The soul does everything. So God does everything in this world. It all comes directly from God. Those who are in the medical practice are the first ones to be, have the ability to be open to this. Because the doctor knows he doesn't heal. Healing, the body heals itself. He can maybe help facilitate, he can help. But it's not something that you do on the outside. It's something, it's something that, comes, that comes from within. But that's true of everything in life. So if you get angry at someone, you attribute powers to that person, that's idolatry. So therefore, it's not the person who hurt. It came directly from God. Why did God choose to aggravate me or to cause me inconvenience or harm that's a message from God it's a wake up call I better do some soul search I better do teshuva it means that something is wrong morally in my own personal life and I better get my act together it's a message it's a wake up call you, know? you can't say that that's the holocaust there are things in life the things right there are things that are beyond Human comprehension. Something, something so. Right, but we're not talking about other people. I'm talking about a person for himself. When you're looking at your own life, when a person is looking at his own life, a person, um, as Maimonides says, a person. That's the reason we fast. We have fast days. He says because the cruelest thing that can happen to a person is when a person. It's like when you see a painting. What's the worst thing you can do to the painting? cut out the author's, the artist's name. The worst thing you can do in life is if you cut God out of life. The author, the creator. You know, in universities they study, they study about the world, but they forgot one little detail. (laughs) The creator. It's like we're studying the body. Oh, but soul? No, the soul doesn't exist. What soul? What soul? What God? When God? Atheism. God is not even mentioned. Do you, is there anything more cruel than that? You're living life. You're observing life. You're studying life. You're observing the intricacies of life. What we understand today in the sciences, it, it's, it's unf- the depth. It's unfathomable, the depth that we discover within the world. And yet, God, what, what God? When God? It's not, even, it's not even part of the vocabulary. This, there's nothing more cruel than that. So if a person lives through life and you go through a tragedy and you don't make a godly connection that is coming from God, I better do something and do a little soul searching, get my act together, make a connection. There's nothing more cruel than that. So this is the foundation of a Jew's life. Everything that happens comes directly from Hashem. And everything is divine providence. Nothing just happens in this world by happenstance. Everything, the tiniest detail. There isn't the slightest movement in this world. As the Shem said, a leaf that turns over. How many times it turned over? Which direction it turned over? Like one time, the Shem showed his chasidim. There was a storm. He says, the whole purpose of that storm is because it was a leaf that had to fall. And he showed how the leaf fell over a worm. The worm, the sun was baking the worm. The worm was crying to God. And I made this whole storm so the leaf fell, covered, and protected the worm. Everything that happens in this world is by divine providence. A Jew who doesn't believe that doesn't, is, as the Talmud says, it's idolatry. 
if you believe that this world is independent and, and there's a body without a soul, and the, that, that's idolatry. So everything that happens in this world, and the whole question, how did the Holocaust happen, is only if you believe in God. If you don't believe in God, there is no question. There was a madman called Hitler who was rejected as, a, as an artist by a Jew, and he hated Jews ever since. And, uh, you know, end of story. If, if you just go by logic and everything is logical and rational, the whole question, obviously the whole question, the reason why it bothers us and it should bother us, is because we know that nothing in this world happens. Not because some guy Hitler decided to get up and he decided to murder Jews, and that's why he was able to murder Jews. Obviously, everything that happens in this world comes from Hashem, and that's why it bothers us so much. No. How can Hashem allow something like this to happen? And we don't have the answer for that. No one, no one says we have the answer. What I meant is you can't ask that question. You know, the, the, um, an individual in the Holocaust couldn't ask the question, um, what did I do to deserve this? Uh, they couldn't really ask that question. You know, a Jew had to ha- has to have asked the question, why is this happening? And the Jew prayed. Till the last moment, the Jews prayed. Wow. And they went into the gas chambers praying and singing an imam. And they were believing that before they would take the last step into the gas chambers, they believed the Mashiach can come. And this, in a moment, they're going to be in Yerushalayim with Mashiach. Absolutely, a Jew ha- has to ask that question. A Jew has- must ask that question. A Jew, till the last moment, even the sword is on your throat. You can't lose faith, and you have to pray, and you have to believe that miracles are possible. Because a Jew believes and knows that everything comes from God. Nothing in this world happens without God. There's the slightest movement. That's the foundation of Jewish belief. It's a moral universe. Nothing in this world happens. It's not an indifferent, cold universe. It's a meaningful universe. It's a moral universe. Everything that happens in this world comes directly from Hashem. And that's why it has to trouble us, and it has to bother us, and we have to demand from Hashem that the only response to something like that, the only response to the Holocaust, really, is really for Hashem to bring Mashiach, now that it happened. Because that's the only thing that maybe then we'll, 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 maybe then we'll have the slightest, the slightest understanding. Now it's just a big mystery. And there's nothing in the world that can justify something like this. Um, you know, to, to say that you know, the, the state of Israel is, 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 if that's the price we had to pay, it's not worth it. And, and, and that's not an answer. And that's not the answer. We don't understand. It's one of those mysteries that are just unfathomable. It's just beyond human comprehension. And uh, the only thing is, Mashiach will come. Maybe then we'll, we'll look back and we'll understand. So that's the only thing. And a Jew has to be restless. A Jew cannot just accept it with, with equanimity and, and give superficial explanations or superficial Justifications, well, that allow the state of Israel. That, 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 that doesn't cut it. That's, that's, that's very offensive, frankly speaking. Um, that doesn't explain it. And, and there is no explanation. And it's a mystery. And it's beyond human comprehension. It's unfathomable. And we don't, we don't justify it. Um, God forbid. And we have, we, on the contrary, that's, that's the urgency that we live with. That's the sense of urgency. That until Mashiach actually comes... We have this sense of urgency. Nothing, nothing satisfies. Nothing could possibly begin, even begin to, to satisfy us, or even begin to answer or to explain. Nothing that happened so far. We have no explanation. And the, um, the question is a very powerful question. And um, unfortunately, 60 years later, we're like almost back to square one. Uh, you know, the anti-Semitism we've seen the last few years, we haven't seen since Hitler. And now, and now it's overt and it's... Uh, they're not even hiding anymore. It's like there's no shame anymore. It's like just right out there, blatant and open. And I mean, so 
you know, we are back to square one. You know, this is not the answer. The only, the answer is, the only answer is we need Mashiach. That's, that's the real answer. Because there's no political solution to the Jewish problem. Ultimately, ultimately anti-Semitism has a divine source. Because the Jew is the conscience of the world, and we give everyone a guilty conscience. And that's the ultimate reason for anti-Semitism. Whether consciously or subconsciously, that's why the Jew evokes, provokes such a powerful response. And we always will provoke a powerful response. Because we are the conscience of the world, and the conscience is not going anywhere. You can't destroy God, and you can't destroy the conscience. But the good news is that the world is ready to listen to the conscience. If only the conscience will act as a conscience and acknowledge that we're the conscience and be proud of the fact that we're the conscience and live like we're the conscience, the world is ready to listen to that message. So, you know, we are on the threshold of Mashiach. We are living in very special times, very special opportunity we never had before. But, uh, but a Jew has to, ha- has to ask that question. How can you not ask that question? And even those Jews who ask that question and use it as an excuse to rationalization they have to realize that whole question comes only because you believe everything comes from God. If you don't believe anything comes from God, what kind of question is there? You know, if God forbid there's a tragedy, the doctor said this happened, the heart stopped functioning, it's the end of the story, but we don't buy that. What do you mean this heart stopped functioning? Nothing in this world just happens. It happens because Hashem decided it to happen. You know, that's just the medium, the vehicle, but what's really going on, the inner part is really coming directly from Hashem. So, a Jew has to do soul-searching. It's a message from Hashem. Anything that happens in our life, we can't just dismiss it as, as an accident or happenstance. It, it, it has meaning. And there's a message for us, a personal message, a direct message, directly from Hashem. Hashem is speaking to us, individually and personally, and very powerfully. And uh, Hashem is communicating to us. So therefore, how can I get angry at this person? This person hurt me. This person harmed me. This person has any control to harm me. It's a message from Hashem. Now, so now let's take it a step further. Now, one of the beliefs in Judaism is that everything that Hashem does is for the good. Because God is essentially good. Therefore, everything that God does is good. Even if we don't see it at the time. And we don't appreciate it at the time. But we believe that everything that God does is for the good. In the language of the Talmud, the famous story of Rabbi Akiva, Kol everything that God does is for the good. The famous story of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was once traveling. Rabbi Akiva was the foremost uh, Jewish leader, but he was also one of the foremost Jewish uh, fundraisers. <laughs> he had a big yeshiva to run. <laughs> he, he traveled around to collect money for his, for his uh, yeshiva, besides being a mystic par excellence and having these deep mystical experiences, but he was a very practical... You know, he ran the organized Jewish community as well. Anyway, he comes to this town. Obviously, it was a very miserly town. He didn't, make, he didn't, make, he didn't do too well in this town. It came at night, nightfall. He asked them if he can sleep over. Everyone refused. He couldn't even sleep over. No one, no one even opened their home to allow the lustiest Rabbi Kiva to, to sleep overnight. They shut their doors on him. So what's he going to do? Well, he has no choice. He went to the forest. But if to make matters worse, things got from bad to worse because all he had with him, he had a... He had a hen to wake him up in the morning. He had a, he had a donkey to, to ride with. And he had a candle so he can learn Torah. So he took his candle and he set up a camp. He set up a tent. So he's, he's getting ready to learn. He's going to spend the night learning. He lights his candle. A wind comes and blows out the candle. 
Then a cat came and ate up the hen. And then a lion came and ate up his donkey. <laughs> not, not a single invitation. He lost his candle, lost everything he had. I mean, it was the worst night in his life. All alone in the, in the forest. But what did Rabbi Kiva say? A Jew, he didn't lose faith. He knows nothing happens by accident. He believed that everything that happened to him was directly from God. And he said, whatever God does is good. He wasn't angry at these people. These people just rejected him. Send him to sleep in the forest. With the lions, you know, alone. He didn't get angry. Whatever God does is for the good. And what happened? That night, marauders came, enemies came, and they took the entire town into captivity. Were he to be there, uh, were he lodged there, he would have been taken captivity with them. Did he have his light on? They would have seen the light. They would have heard the rooster. They would have heard the donkey. Because he was left with nothing, they missed him, and his life was spared. So it didn't take him long to see that whatever God does is for the good. Even though at the time he couldn't see it. But he never lost his faith. Everything in this world comes from God. And God is good. So everything God does is good. God is not here to punish us or to hurt us. That's not what life is about. God is not trying to get even with us. or to get. It's everything that God does for us is for the good. It's for our own good. You know, the analogy you can use is, take a little child. You take a child to the doctor. Child, the doctor is enemy number one. Even after the lollipops, again, it's enemy number one. The doctor is putting needles into, into him. The doctor is hurting me. The child can't possibly begin to understand that this doctor is helping him. What happens when the child grows up? He brings himself to the doctor. He realizes the doctor is not about the pain. It's the doctor is healing me. But a child can't possibly begin to perceive what that's all about. You have to drag the child and he comes goes yelling and kicking and screaming and the doctor is, is hurting him and to him that, that's what the experience is all about but he can't possibly see the bigger picture or to use another analogy imagine an aborigine who's never seen the inside of a hospital walk into a hospital one day first time in his life what does the aborigine see? he sees these eight men and women in white coats tying down this poor helpless victim tying him to the bed taking out these sharp knives, cutting him open, blood all over the place. He would, he would yell, bloody murder. From his point of view, from his perspective, that, that's all he understands. You can't possibly begin to understand that these people are the most compassionate, the kindness. They're, they're, they're healing and they're saving this person's life. Yeah, they may, they may be cutting off the leg, amputating the leg, but they're saving the person's life. So it's, we can't see the bigger picture. We're not God. We just see a tiny little fragment. How much is 363 times 977? Anyone? So if we can't figure out something as simple as that, we're going to figure out life. It's totally beyond, beyond our comprehension. The human body is made up of billions of atoms. If one atom took a break, a lunch break, the whole body would disintegrate. It's so beyond our comprehension. So we can understand. We understand nothing. The previous Babishar everyone said, he says, when it comes to not understanding, we're all billionaires. You know, what we don't know is so much more than, than what we do know. So you have to approach it with humility. And that's what faith is. Faith is, I don't see the bigger picture. But I know, I have faith 
that God who does see the bigger picture knows exactly what he's doing. As a discussion that Alter Rebbe once had with two of his colleagues, the author of the Tanya once had a discussion with two of his colleagues, Rabbi Levi Bardichev, and may have been Rabbi Zush of Anapol, and, and they were discussing what would they do if they were God. So one colleague said if he was God, he would shut down all the hospitals. He would make everyone healthy. And the other one said if he was God, he would make everyone wealthy. And Alter Rebbe says, if I were God, I would do exactly what God is doing now. Because God knows what he's doing. And obviously, everything that he does is for the good. And we cannot even begin to comprehend. We don't, understand, we don't see the bigger picture. So that's faith. Faith is we believe that God is good. God is not out to harm us. Life is not just, you know, just to, to mutra us, or to just pain for the sake of pain, God forbid. It's all for our benefit. It's all for our own good. Sometimes we see it instantly, sometimes it takes longer, sometimes we don't see it till the end of our life or much later in our life. You look back, you know, when, when Reagan became a failed actor, okay, you know, it eventually helped him become the president. So at that point, I'm sure he felt like a real failure, but it was just preparing him for a whole different uh, level. So sometimes you have to look back in life and you realize that was a turning point in your life and that actually helped you and that was... It opened up a whole new vista in your life. At the time when you're experiencing the pain and the suffering and the negativity, you can't appreciate it. But a Jew has faith. A Jew never loses faith. Even in the darkest moments, a Jew always remembers, as Rabbi Kiva said, whatever God does is for the good. Because, A, we believe everything that happens in this world comes directly from Hashem. Nothing just happens. Hashem not only creates the world, Hashem runs the world. Hashem is in control of the world. No one lifts a pinky unless it's decreed in heaven. This is the fundamental of fundamentals of Jewish belief, that Hashem is in total control of this world. That's why whatever we do, we have to act naturally. We have to go to the doctor, we have to speak to the financial consultant, we have to do whatever we have to do. But first and foremost, a Jew prays, because we realize, ultimately, everything comes from Hashem. So we increase in tzedakah, we pray, we study a little more Torah, we act a little more selflessly, more uh, acts of goodness and kindness, because ultimately, whatever we do is just, is just the vessel, the vehicle. It's the pocket. The person needs a pocket. If Hashem wants to give you money, you need a pocket. If there's no pocket, there's, no, there's nothing to hold, a, hold, hold on to the money, so you need a pocket. It's like the story the old Jew turns to Hashem. He says, listen, I went to shul three times a day for the last 70 years. You never once showed him some affair. Let me, let me once win the lottery. <laughs> so here's a heavenly voice. Why don't you buy the lottery ticket? <laughs> you know, you have to make a vessel, so you have to buy the lottery ticket. You have to have a packet. That, but that's all it is. It's a vessel. It has to be an honest vessel. You have to do it faithfully and honestly, otherwise it's a hole in the packet. So you have to make a packet. But ultimately, that's not where it comes from. You can make a lot of packets. A person will sell a lot of packets. It's not going to bring a, a single cent into your packet. You have to realize the blessing comes from Hashem. Everything comes from Hashem. So yes, you have to make the packet and you have to act naturally and you have to act responsibly. But ultimately, that's just a symptom. That's just the vessel, the vehicle. But where, where does it come from? Everything comes from Hashem. So if you want, don't just deal with the symptom. Don't just address the symptom. Address the root cause. If you want something to change in your life, you have to address the root cause. If you give more tzedakah, you'll increase in Torah. You'll find more time to study Torah. More time to study Torah. The busier you are, you find more time to study Torah. And you give more tzedakah. And you do, and you pray to Hashem, that's going to bring down the blessing. Then whatever you do will succeed. But of course, you have to work in a natural way. 
the um, you know the Lubavitcher Rebbe's, starting with Alter Rebbe, actually were very active in in government relations because they represented the Jewish community. They were the leaders of the Jewish community in Russia. You know, a few million Jews in Russia, and they would interact with the ministers, with the anti-Semitic uh, ministers of the Tsar's government, and um, and they would work with, they organize the community, they work with all the powerful, influential uh, Jews in Russia. Um, but after taking care of doing everything that you, you have to do in a natural way, then they would go, but the emphasis was always, we have to pray to Hashem. We have to, because realize ultimately, any change ultimately has to come from Hashem. It's going to be a genuine change then it has to come directly from Hashem. And the way to succeed in anything in life, in health, in business, anything in life, there's not a single area in life that's exempt. In order to succeed in any area in life, individually, collectively, communally, the more we strengthen our connection with Hashem, the more successful you'll be. The more genuine you are, the more successful you'll be. The more honest you are, the more successful you'll be. The more moral and ethical and the better you are, as a Jew, the more Jewish, the more connected you are, the more, the more successful you'll be. This is, the, fa- this is the, f- the foundation of a Jew's life. So a Jew has faith. A Jew knows even in the darkest moments, even the painful moments, we have faith. Everything comes from Hashem. And we have faith that everything that Hashem does is for our own benefit, even if we don't see it at the time. Therefore, coming back to the story of Yosef and our good friend who just harmed us, who just is behaving in a way that's making us angry and but we realize, wait a minute, he's just a messenger from Hashem. He has no power to harm me. Whatever he did to me comes directly from heaven. And whatever comes from heaven is good. There's nothing negative that comes from heaven. Everything that comes from Hashem is good. Therefore, this person, it turns out that not only didn't this person harm me, this person is actually doing me a great favor. How can I not repay in kind? I can only respond by, by being gentle and kind to him. He's not harming me. If everything that he does comes from Hashem... And as Yosef told his brothers, you sold me into slavery. Hashem sold me into slavery. You thought it was negative, but it was all good. Now you see it's all good. Then at the time, you didn't and I didn't. But now I realize it's all good. Because Hashem is kind, Hashem is good. So if that's true by Yosef, it's true in every single case. Without any exemption. Without an exception. Because if someone is harming you, and causing you to be angry because he harmed you and he mistreated you. You have to stop and think a moment. He is mistreating me. Unless it was decreed in heaven that I should be allowed to be aggravated or I should be inconvenienced, it can never happen. So it's a direct message from God. That's something to do with the other person. And since everything that Hashem does is for my own good, my own benefit, so it's actually something good. So I have to be grateful and thankful for the person for delivering this package of goodness, of blessings, hidden blessings. I don't even know what's, what's inside this package. I don't know yet. It's like a, a hidden present. Eventually, I'll, I'll open it up. Eventually, I'll discover, I'll realize that it was all for the good. So I have to be grateful and thankful. So when he's bringing the proof of Yosef HaTzadik, he's not only bringing us an example of Yosef, how we're supposed to treat someone who mistreats us, he's also giving us the rationale, the explanation, because Yosef gave the explanation. Because God did it to me. Not you, you didn't sell me into slavery. God sold me into slavery. How can I be angry? 
How can I be a grudge against you? And whatever God does, does is for the good. So I have to thank you. He was grateful for them. He treated them royally. He didn't, not, not only didn't take revenge, he actually showered them with gifts and, and he, was, he expressed his gratefulness. So he's saying that every one of us has to behave the same way towards our enemies, those who mistreat us. Because the truth is that they're, they're actually doing me a big favor. Jewish enemies or any enemy? And we have many Jewish enemies right now. No, we're not talking about... Right. Thank you. No, no, we're talking, we're talking about... Uh, talking about Probably. Jewish enemies. Um, we're not talking about the Amaliks of the world. Amaliks of the world are tumors. If, if, if they may teach us a lesson. They may teach us a lesson, but... but they're not no. to be treated. No, they're not to be treated, no. Because, again, the analogy of the human organism. If the world is a human organism and the Jew is the heart... Amalek are the tumors in the body. Cancer. Cancer is only one way to deal with tumor. Total obliteration. Annihilate Amalek. Have no mercy on Amalek. Because if you can have mercy on Amalek, even one cell, if you allow one cell to live, that one cell will, will metastasize. And it's suicidal. It'll kill you and kill itself. Because when the body dies, the cancer cell also dies. It's without Rahmanus, without mercy, without compassion. The only merciful thing to do to a tumor is totally oblivious. That's the lesson. The lesson is that not everything in this world has to be treated equally. You have to be able to categorize it. You have to be able to write. You have to, there are, for example, the Torah says the 70 nations of the world will be redeemed. When Mashiach will come, they will all serve God. They will all recognize God. The Gentiles will be enlightened and they'll all come to recognize God and appreciate the Jew and appreciate his message and actually adopt the Jew as their teacher and the temple will become the white house of the world, the leadership of the world. And everyone will flock to Jerusalem to study wisdom, to study Torah. Just like in the times of King Solomon. He married every single kingdom. He married every, every king. He had relations with the entire world. And they all, they all uh, um, respected the Jewish people and came to study wisdom. But then there's Amalek. Amalek is the exception. They said, Am Hussein's though. Until he was hanged, no remorse. You're talking about absolute evil here. You're not talking about there's something that could be redeemed. There's nothing to be redeemed with the Iranian president. These are irredeemable. This is absolute evil. The anti-Semites of the world, the the the, the pure anti-Semites, those who are uh, unadulterated anti-Semites, that, that's Amalek. It's like a tumor. There's nothing to heal. There's, the tumor has to be totally uprooted. That's the merciful thing to do. That's the healing thing to do. You want to heal the world, obliterate the tomb. That's the only thing to do. That's the merciful thing to do, the kind thing to do. And that's the message. So again, a Jew who believes in God can understand it. A person who doesn't believe in God can't understand this concept. You have to make peace. They look at everything equally. They don't have a measuring stick how to look at something. What's the purpose? A doctor knows the purpose of the tumor is to be destroyed. That's its entire purpose. It has no other purpose. There's nothing positive there. It has to be totally... That's the positive message, destroy it. But if you don't believe in God, you take everything at face value, you have to, you have to accommodate everyone. You have to, we have to speak with Arafat, and we have to sit down and talk and speak to, to this Hitler and talk to that Hitler, and let's accommodate, let's have coffee together, and let's accommodate, because it's a reality. You have to make peace with it. You can't make peace with a tumor. You can't. And if you make peace with a tumor, it's suicidal, as we have learned the hard way, unfortunately, both here and in Israel. It doesn't work. It can't work. Hopefully we will. It's up to us to 
teach, teach that. We're the teachers of the world. We're the conscience of the world. It's up to the Jewish people to teach that lesson. But if you're firmly rooted in the belief in God, then you can look at everything and you can examine everything and say, what's the purpose? What's the inner purpose? Not, what, not face value. What's the inner purpose? The inner purpose of this is it's sick. We have to heal it. I can deal with it. But the inner purpose of a tumor is total obliteration. Just like we did with Hitler. We won the war against fascism. Unconditional surrender. We totally obliterated it forever and ever. That's the answer. There is no other answer. And we had 60 years of genuine peace with Germany and with Japan. That's the answer. That's the only approach you have. That's how you have to deal with a cancer. There's no other approach. That's the positive approach. That's the merciful approach. That's the kind approach. That's the just approach. But that's, that's only if you believe. If you believe in God, you look at everything. What's the inner purpose? Like, the, the God created the whole world for the Jew, and he said, this is off-limit, this is not kosher, it's here. But it doesn't mean just because it's here, it's here to be used. It's here not to be used. The way you deal with it is by rejecting it. By, this is poison, and this is healthy. That's how you deal with it. Everything in the world, you have to look at the inner purpose, not on the surface. This is poison, this has to be rejected. It's not kosher, it's impure, no good. This is good. That's how, that's how you have to deal with it. You have to look at everything. What's the inner purpose? How, you, how do you deal with it properly? That's the Torah. The Torah illuminates us. The Torah guides us. Without the Torah, we'd all be lost. I don't know. How do I distinguish between good and evil, right and wrong, poison, not poison, healthy, unwholesome? It's very easy to be deceived. On the surface, you're confused. You don't know how to go about it. The Torah clarifies everything in this world. The Torah categorizes everything in this world. Kosher, not kosher, neutral. It has the ability to be elevated. Kosher, wonderful, not kosher. Or a malik, total destruction, tumor. Get rid of it. How, how did the early Christians then come up with treat your neighbor like yourself as this divergence from what Judaism represented and, and they still you know, stand by that when that's what you're teaching us tonight? You know, I don't understand that. Well, actually, that their their that most famous saying is is uh, from Hillel. It's a direct yeah. quote from Hillel. There's nothing original. Everything that's good there, that's worth mentioning, is all taken directly from from the Torah. Hillel said, "Don't do unto others what you don't want to be done to yourself," and everything everything else is commentary. Uh, but even that, they distorted. <laughs> Hillel said in the negative, they they turned it into the positive. Because they really missed the whole point. There's a reason why Hillel said in the negative. But um, just like it wasn't an apple, uh, her name is not Eve. Right. You know, it's like that, that famous story. Someone meets someone in the street. He says, "I heard you. I heard you made a, a million dollars in the in the stock market." He says, firstly, it wasn't a million, it was a half a million. It wasn't the stock market, it was in real estate. It wasn't me, it was my brother. It wasn't he made, he lost. But other than that, he got everything right. <laughs> so everything they took, they distorted it. And they, you know... I, I mean, somehow I think that the whole eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing is more associated with what Judaism represents than treat your you know, like. No, that, that, see, that's also not true because we have the oral tradition. The Torah never said an eye for an eye. The oral tradition says you have to pay the monetary value of the eye. You, Jews never poked out an eye for an eye. or never. This was never the Jewish way. Uh, they joke today in, in Saudi Arabia, what do you call someone who steals? You call them... 
lefty. <laughs> the, uh, that was never the Jewish way. That was never the Jewish way. It was always monetary compensation. It's just ignorance. It's, it's all distortion, all ignorance. That was never the Jewish way. Um, someone joked, the priest asked the rabbi, he said, why is the God of the Old Testament, what they call the Old Testament, to us, to us there's only one testament, uh, is harsh, you know, the unforgiving God, you know. <coughs> well, the new, the, 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 their testament, God is kind and merciful. So the rabbi joked back, he said, he says, you know, the God of the, the Old Testament so he, he took all the anger for himself. He left us with all the kindness. <laughs> he says, for God to call the love. But in the name of your God and your crusades, how many millions of people were murdered in the name of Christian love? How many Jews were murdered in the name of love? You know, so everything has been distorted. Um, Judaism teaches, but on the other hand, even that concept is distorted. The whole idea of turning the other cheek is not a Jewish concept, by the way. See, without Torah, you don't, know, you don't know where to go. It's like you become a pacifist. There's no pacifism in Judaism. The same Torah that teaches us kindness, the same Torah that we just learned to act like Joseph. If someone mistreats you, treat them, respond to harshness with kindness. Mm-hmm. The same Torah says, don't be a pacifist. If someone comes to murder you or to endanger life, if you see someone running down the street trying to hurt someone or rape someone or hurt someone, you have to stop him even at the cost of his life. If the only way to stop him is by killing him, you have an obligation to take his life. There's no pacifism in Judaism. There's no concept of turning the other cheek. That's not a Jewish concept. Again, they distorted the concept of kindness. Because when, you, when you're kind in the, in the place where the Torah says you should be strong, you'll end up being cruel in the place where the Torah says you have to be kind. You have to know when. Without Torah, you, don't, you, don't, you can't differentiate. So a person who's a pacifist, everything is with everything, his response to everything is kindness. Sometimes it's not appropriate. A parent is too kind to their child, doesn't discipline the child, isn't appropriate. You have to know when it's appropriate. Sometimes the kind thing is to be tough. When it's not about you. If it's about me, my feelings and my emotions, then your response is consistent. You're always kind. Sometimes it's appropriate, sometimes it isn't. But when you have a Torah, it's not about me. You have a higher authority. The Torah gives us that clarity and gives us that guidance. The truth. The truth is, sometimes the truth expresses itself in kindness, and sometimes that very same truth says, the kind thing to do is to be strong, to fight, to be vehement, to be strong and forceful. So you have to know when. Without Torah, you, can't, you don't negotiate this well. That's why you end up with liberals who are always liberal, conservatives are always conservative. Sometimes it's appropriate, sometimes it's not appropriate. When you have a Torah, and that's why they can't figure us out. That's why the Jew is a perennial mystery. They've been studying us for 3,800 years. They still are mystified by us because we are conservative and we are liberal at the same time, ultra-conservative, ultra-liberal simultaneously. It makes no sense. From a human point of view, it's impossible. Either you're liberal or you're conservative. The Jew is a paradox. The very same Jew sometimes is ultra-liberal and at the same time ultra-conservative because we have a truth. It's not about my emotions and my feelings and my instincts. We have a Torah. We have a higher that guides us, that illuminates us. And it tells us the truth. And that same truth tells us in this situation, be soft and gentle and kind. And a moment later, be tough and strong and forceful. So this is, this is the path, this is the way of truth, the way of the Torah. It's a blend, it's a harmony. It's, it's, it's... But yes, they, they took this concept from Jews, like everything else. Yeah, I, just, I never understood what the, like why they thought they had come up with something that 
like the, the Jews weren't doing and they wanted to do differently? No, it's all it's all a distortion. Jews till today are the epitome of kindness. The Jews are disproportionately represented in all of the charities in America. You'll see a list of the donors. It's all Jews. Just by instinct, we're just the kind people, the kindest people in the world. Till today. So no one has anything over the Jew when it comes to kindness or love or gentleness. It's, it's inborn within us. It's, the, it's almost the signature of the Jew. We're a kind people, a compassionate people. Whether it's save the whales or save this one or save that one, the Jew is always at the forefront. We just have Rahmanis. We're just a good people. Just by nature and instinct. So no one has anything over, no one has to tell us, teach us anything about kindness. And in the name of Christian love, how many millions and millions of Jews died in the name of so, you know, you have to put everything into perspective. And also, don't forget, you know, every Jew that's alive today, and out of six billion people, is there anyone on earth who could name the great, 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 great grandparents' name going back a thousand years ago? Yet every single Jew in the world could name the name of the great, great, great grandparent and grandmother going back 3,800 years on a first name basis. Avraham, Sarah, Rivka, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Rachel. We feel so close to them. We know them. Because, so every Jew, the Christians today are not the biological children of the original Christians. Every Jew is a biological child. And someone who converted halachically is fused, fused into the soul, the organic soul of the Jewish people. Um, so this is, you know, we, a Jew has to be proud. The, the, we shouldn't allow the goyim to denigrate us and put us down. I mean, that's, that's the excuse they used to murder the Jews because we were exiled. He said, oh, that's proof that God hates us. So now it became a mitzvah to murder us. In the name of Christian love, it became a mitzvah in this twisted divine logic, in their twisted logic. Since God, since we rejected Jay, so therefore God got angry at us, he destroyed the temple, he exiled us, so it's a mitzvah to murder us. And if you have any doubts, just to conclude one last point, um, based on orthodox, strict orthodox Christian theology, when they quote Eichmann, and right before they hanged Eichmann, the minister went in, the priest went in, offered the last rites, and they asked him, did he confess? The reporters asked the priest when he left the room, before he was hanged, did he confess? He says, that's private information. I can't share that with you. He said, let me ask, but then they, they persisted. Said, Let's ask you a question. If he did confess, where is he going? He says, straight to heaven. So he says, so, so let's get this straight. The half a million Jewish babies were murdered. Straight to hell. Because they didn't accept Yoshka Pendrick. And Eichmann is going straight to heaven. So we rest our case. <laughs> so, uh, you know, just You know, we were there at the births of all these civilizations. We were there at the funerals. 
You know, the Jew is the eternal people, and our message is eternal, and um, many people are, are open to that message, including many Christians today are actually very respectful and very open to the Jewish message. You know, we're living in a different, a different time now, a unique time, which, um, you know, there's a genuine respect, and, uh, and uh, they want the Jew to assume his position as the conscience of the world, as a leader, moral leader of the world, not just brute strength and might and cleverness, but moral strength and, and, and spiritual strength. And, you know, and the Jews stood at Sinai. You know, we, we are the conscience of the world. They know that. And they, they want, and really, even anti-Semitism is really the non-Jews' funny way of telling the Jew, get your act together. Stop pretending. Stop playing games. Just be who you are. You're the Jew. You're the chosen. You stood at Sinai. You have the Torah. You have the message. You have the truth. Don't try to blend in and assimilate and pretend that you're just another nation. No, you're just another country, a normal country. You're not normal. You're not a normal country. There's nothing normal about you. You're a nation of prophets. You're a nation of priests. You're, 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 you're a holy people. And start acting like a holy people. And be who you are. Speak in, Jew, in a Jewish voice. Speak clearly. Articulately. That's what the guy wants today. That's the world today. They're not shoving us into ovens anymore. It's a different world today. They want to... They want... They don't want a Jew to get up and say publicly that we surrender, we're tired, we're exhausted, we just want, we just want, just leave us alone. That's not what they want to hear today. After 3,800 years, surrender, tired, exhausted, you guys won. <laughs> you defeated communism, you defeated fascism, you're on top of the world. Everyone today wants, from, from, from Adana on down, wants to be Jewish or connected to something Jewish. You defeated, exhausted, compromised, you won. Act like the winner. Speak up. Be, be strong. They want, they want Jews to be strong today, to be coherent, to be forceful, to be connected, to be spiritual, to be godly, to be holy. That's, that's what they're crying out for. And if we disappoint them, it's relentless. Anti-Semitism is relentless. It's not going to stop if we, if we disappoint them. And the more we twist into a pretzel and bend over backwards just to be loved and accepted and compromised... You know, they, they, they lose all respect for us. That's not what they want to hear. They want a Jew to be strong. And when they're strong, there's tremendous respect. After the Six-Day War, every Jew in the world was like a hero. After Entebbe, every Jew in the world. After 81, of course, they all came down with a ton of bricks in Israel. But secretly, they were like, wow, you know, go, go for it. You know, good for you. At least someone in this world has got some courage and, and, and knows, knows right from wrong. And in a very few years, they even publicly acknowledged it. Uh, you know, the, the Cheney said, said publicly, it's the best, the best thing that Israel ever did. So just you got to do, do it again now. Just do the right thing. Life is not a popularity contest. We're not, this is not Miss America here. We're not, we're not running. This is not a popularity. Life is not about being popular. Life is doing the right thing. And if you do the right thing, you'll be popular. But when you don't do the right thing, they'll hate us. Whenever Israel was strong... There was respect. There was awe, respect. But the moment we confuse in our minds and we think, think that the goal is to be popular, everything went downhill since. Everything. And it's just, just sliding downhill. It's not getting better. Because we don't get it. It's not about being popular. It's not about... It's not a popularity contest. Being accepted? You, you know, the Jew is the teacher of the world. A teacher's job is not to be popular. A kid, kids don't like the teacher instinctively. That's, that's the meaning of anti-Semitism. Because the teacher is there to discipline the child. The teacher is there to, 
no one wants to be a child would rather run around wild and free and carefree. So the teacher's the enemy. Of course, when the child will grow up, the child will realize that not only isn't the teacher the enemy, the teacher's my best friend. He taught me all the finer things in life, all the noble things in life. And that, that's, what, that's what anti-Semitism is all about, and, and that's the answer to anti-Semitism. The Jew is a teacher of the world, the conscience of the world. That's our mission. And we knew that the, the non-Jews would not appreciate our mission. But, that, but we knew that one day they will. Mashiach, one day the world will grow up and realize the Jewish message is so powerful, is so real, is so relevant to our lives. It's the only decent way to live. If you want to lead a moral, ethical, spiritual, wholesome life, this is the only way. And we know that one day, and that, that's the world of Mashiach, when the non-Jews will grow up and realize and welcome the Jewish message and welcome the Jewish teaching. But until that day comes, we have a mission that we have to accomplish, and we're faithful to our mission. Our parents have been faithful for 3,800 years. We went through fire and water, thick and thin. The problem begins when the teacher forgets that he's a teacher, and the teacher wants to become popular. That's a disaster. Because up until this point, at least the students hated you, but they respected you. But when the teacher pretends to be one of the students and just wants to be loved and accepted, they genuinely despise the teacher. Think about it. In Nazi Germany, the Germans, the Jews, were more German than the Germans. And look what happened. They became ferocious. That's not what they want. The Goyim don't like it. That's not what you... Who are you kidding? More German than the Germans? You're one of us? Never will be. Never were, never will be. You're the Jew. You're the chosen. You're the holy. You're the prophets. Be the conscience of the world. Look like a Jew. Speak like a Jew. Act like a Jew. That's what they want to hear. And when they see that, they give us a standing ovation. That's the world we live in today. When they see a Jew who's proud, it just, the, the, the non-Jew gets very excited. And that's true individually, and that's also true collectively. When you live your life and you do the right thing, life is not about living for the Joneses. You, know, you don't live a life just to conform because everyone else is doing it, I'm doing it. That, that's not a way to live. You have to do what's right. Popular, not popular, politically correct, not politically correct. You have to be able to sleep at night. You have a conscience. You have a connection with Hashem. That's how you define your life. And the more genuine you are and the more authentic you are, the more and the more comfortable you are in your own skin, with your own Jewishness, everyone you put everyone at ease. Everyone around you feels comfortable with the Jewish problem, with the Jewish question. But when the Jew is uncomfortable in his own skin, you make everyone around us feel uncomfortable and insecure. So the answer to anti-Semitism is not to pretend that we're not Jewish or to assimilate. The answer to anti-Semitism is to be more Jewish. To be proud, to connect with it. If every Jew in the world did one more mitzvah and connected with a Yiddishkeit, Mashiach would be in a split second. We would revolutionize human consciousness. That's the answer. It's so simple, it's so doable, it's so practical. Every one of us is a part of it. Every one of us, by pushing ourselves to do that extra little mitzvah, and be prouder of our Jewishness and be more connected and deepen that connection and deepen that relationship with God. And that's the answer. That's the ultimate answer. There is no political solution to the Jewish problem. The only answer is divine because the whole source of the problem is it's divine. We're the conscience of the world. As the Talmud says, why was Sinai called Sinai? Because Sinai, a play on Sinai, is Sina. The, when Sinai, when the Torah was given, we became the conscience of the world. So we gave everyone a guilty conscience. So what's the answer? The answer is not, there's no political answer. The answer is we have to teach the world. And we have to make the world a moral, ethical place. So the more Jewish we are, the more in touch we are as a conscience, the more connected we are, 
That's the antidote. The more we acknowledge that we're the teachers of the world and act like a teacher, and act like the prophet, the nation of prophets, a nation of priests, a nation, a holy nation. And when a Jew walks down the streets, here's a Jew, a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The non-Jew is mystified by the Jew because they know that this individual is a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, who survived 3,800 years. No nation on earth ever went through even, even a thousands of what the Jewish people went through. Mecca was never destroyed. Rome was never destroyed. They never went into exile like we had, crushing exiles, pogroms, holocaust. No one on earth even, even came close. It's a miracle. They know that a Jew is a walking miracle. A Jew walking down Park Avenue is a walking miracle. We're the only ones who forget that our whole being is miraculous. Our whole being speaks divine, godly, holy. The non-Jew knows it. So when we start to pretend to act in a natural way, scheming and, and, and conniving, and we have to act naturally because we have to do the responsible thing. That's what Hashem wants from us. But ultimately, essentially, we have to remember it's our divine connection. That's, that's who we are. That's our essence. And the more connected we are, the more we will succeed in everything that we touch. And this is the foundation. It's the Jewish pride. Without Jewish pride, that's the backbone that holds the whole organism together. If there's no backbone, if there's no spine, the whole organism collapses. You just have a heap of bones. It's nothing. It's this the spine, the pride, the neshama, the connection that holds it all together. And that's what, that's what the non-Jew wants to see within the Jew. They want to see that sparkle. They want to see that pride, that, that, that pintle that It's a different world today. It's a different world. The war is over. We have to realize the war is over. It's, it's ours for the taking. The world is hungry and ready for the Jewish message. We just have to step up to the plate. And even the, many Christians today are, are, are very respectful and the biggest supporters of Israel and uh, genuinely respectful of, of Jews and the Torah. And uh, they really would like for the Jew to be who he is, to be Jewish, and to be proud and to act Jewish. So it's really in our hands, up to us. It's really up to us. The world is, is yearning for our leadership because... We were chosen to be the leaders of the world, moral leaders of the world, spiritual leaders. No, no one has the answer. And with all due respect, uh, America is pretty clueless when it comes to this war against terrorism. I mean, Iraq is a fiasco. It just, it's, just, it's, it's just going nowhere. Um, the only one who can provide that type of that level of leadership, clarity, strength, of character, is really only the Jewish people, as we did during Entebbe in 1981, 67. And that leadership is sorely lacking today. Um, but that, that's the only answer. There is no other answer. Only the Jew can provide that, that, that level of leadership. And, and they know it. And they wish we were. Um, so it's really up to us. They're really looking to us for direction. Even the anti-Semitism we see today is really a cry. A cry from the non-Jew. Like, come on, Jews, get your act together. We're all suffering. You don't have your act together. Look, we're all suffering. Get your act together and the world will become a safe place, become a good place, a wholesome place, a stable place. After Entebbe, there was no hijacking for the next 10 years. When Jews are strong and act, do, do what's right, the whole world becomes a safe place. But when we're confused and we're like, the whole world becomes unsettled and unstable, as we sing today. Very confused place. So it's really all up to us. 
But um, just to get back to Yosef, that um, so not only between man and God, but also between man and man, um, we have to respond with kindness. We have to respond to anger and to negativity with kindness, with positive, because we have to acknowledge that everything that happens in our life comes directly from Hashem, and everything that God does is for the good, even if we don't appreciate it at the time. But this is a fundamental faith in Judaism, so therefore I actually have to be grateful and thankful for this person for delivering me God's kindness. It's hidden. It's, it's, it's wrapped in the package. I don't see yet where the kindness is, what the goodness is, but I have faith. I know whatever Hashem does is for my own benefit, for my own good. And therefore, a person could control himself, even though you feel those raw urges of anger and hatred and, and, um, and uh, jealousy. And, and, you, and you shouldn't feel guilty about it. It's not in your control. You can't control yourself. We have egos, and our egos are bruised and hurt. And, but you could control how you respond, how you react. The moment it, from, it enters from your bruised heart, it enters into your mind, and you, you want to pursue it, just dismiss it. And instead, realize, say to yourself, listen, it comes from Hashem, everything Hashem does is good. I'm going to respond with kindness. And ironically, that's probably the best way to respond also. <laughs> because you're going to throw them off, totally. That's the last, way, that's the last thing the person will expect, is to respond with kindness. That will totally disarm them. Actually, someone told me a beautiful story. Someone who actually comes to the, to, to, to the Tanya class, she came a few times. That her husband passed away, she took over the family business. And one of the people that worked for them for many years, because her husband was gone, she was, all, she was all alone, he like took all the clients and the whole idea of the business, and he went and opened up his own business, basically taking away the whole business. You know, she was like so angry. She went to the rabbi, he says, how should I respond? The rabbi told her, you know, go to this person and tell him that you're, you're actually going to, you're not angry at him, you're actually going to help him. And uh, <laughs> she says, how can I do this? He says, just listen to me. It's exactly what she did. And it turned out, the business became, the moment she did that, the business became better than ever. You know, she turned a negative situation to a totally positive situation. And um, so the results, it's a good experiment to try. The results could be quite astonishing. Because the person in the receiving end will surely be knocked off his uh, feet. <laughs> it's the last thing in the world he would expect. You know, everyone expects his natural reaction will be anger, anger, fire, with fire. And we'll see you responding totally in an unexpected way. Um, you may get very interesting results. But even, even though, it doesn't matter, even if you don't get those results. You have to, you're doing it from your end, from your point of view. You're acknowledging everything comes from Hashem, and if how can I get angry? How can I get angry at that person? When you get angry at that person, who am I angry at? Him. Hashem did this to me, and there's a message for there, and it's for my good, for my benefit. If I actually get angry at him. Instead, I'll thank him <laughs> and uh, repay repay hostility with kindness. So this is a very powerful program to live up to, and. Um, in the next chapter, next week we're going to start chapter 13. We'll talk about the Benini, which seems like quite a remarkable human being. I'm still waiting to meet one. <laughs> this is the average Jew. It's, uh, <laughs> someone who's so perfect, thinks like a Jew, speaks like a Jew, acts like a Jew, doesn't even 
not only between man and God, even between man and man, is always menschlich and does the right thing and is kind and doesn't lose his temper and doesn't fly into a rage and doesn't bear grudges and you know um, he's not jealous, envious. He doesn't allow those thoughts to ferment. This is quite a uh, remarkable individual. Dr. Rebbe says, every one of us has the potential to be this individual. We do not have the potential to become a tzaddik. A tzaddik is one who no longer has any evil urges or instincts. That's beyond our control. We're not born that way. So there will always be an inner tension, an inner dissonance. And that's, that's our destiny for the rest of our lives. But we do have control over our expression, our behavior, our thought, our speech, our action, and even our thoughts. He says that the Benini is one who is not only perfect in the mitzvot, in the fulfillment of the mitzvot, the man and God, in thought, speech, and action, but even regarding the mitzvot, the man and men. Even regarding the attitudes, he doesn't allow himself to get angry, he doesn't allow himself to vent, enter into a rage, he doesn't allow himself to be jealous or envious, and doesn't allow himself to, to be vengeful. He says, on, on the contrary, not only isn't he angry at those who hurt him, he's actually, he actually rewards their their cruelty with kindness. Just like Yosef treated his brothers. He says, we learned this from Yosef. And the reason we learned this from Yosef is because Yosef is the one who actually gives us the strength to be able to accomplish this. Because what is Yosef? Who is Yosef? Yosef the Jewish people are called on the name Yosef, the entire Jewish people. Why are we called Yosef? Because Yosef is the one who sustained us in our famine, not just physical famine. Yosef is the one who sustains the Jewish people throughout all history. He's the one who gives them the strength to be able to deal with these type of challenges. What is Yosef? Yosef was the epitome. Yosef had such a real faith in Hashem. His faith in Hashem was so real, was so tangible. It was recognizable to everyone, even to non-Jews. Like the the head of the jail says to Yosef, I see that God is with you. How does he know that Hashem is with him? Because Yosef was constantly saying, mentioning Hashem's name. It was, it was so palpable to Yosef. Hashem was so real, such a reality, that even the non-Jew felt it. So Yosef represents faith. You know, there's faith. But for the brothers, faith was much more abstract. It was a more abstract faith. That's the reason they had to be shepherds. They had to live in isolation from the world because they couldn't deal the clash of faith and reality. They couldn't deal with it. If they were engaged in the world, immersed in the world, they wouldn't be able, their faith wasn't strong enough to be able to deal with the realities, the challenges of a modern, modern world. So they had to live in a ghetto, they had to live in isolation, they had to be shepherds. Yosef's faith, however, was so powerful, was so intense, was so palpable, that he was able to thrive in the metropolitan of Egypt, in the most modern, the cutting edge, the capital, the center, the nerve center of Egypt, and yet maintain his Yiddishkeit. Even as a 17-year-old teenager, hot-blooded teenager, stunningly gorgeous, beautiful, and yet in the moment of truth, he was alone, and he was seduced. As the Talmud describes how he was seduced, and yet nevertheless, he was able to 
withstand, resist temptation only because of his faith. So his faith was real. Yosef represents his faith in Hashem, his relationship to Hashem was so real. It was so powerful that he was able to resist temptation. He was able to retain, maintain his Yiddishkeit, his righteousness, his holiness, even at the same time while he was totally immersed, being totally immersed in the Egyptian culture and society. And there was no clash for him because he has such clarity, he has such depth. It was real, it was an internal. And where do we see that ultimately in the example that the Rebbe brings here at the end of chapter 12? The way Yosef treated his brothers. As we read in last week's Torah portion, after Yaakov passes away, they bury Yaakov, um, the brothers send a message to Yosef, your brother, your father, our father commanded us that you shouldn't estrange us. Because they were worried now that Yaakov is away, is gone, they, the, Yosef will, would mistreat them. And what does Yosef respond to them? What does Yosef tell them? You thought negatively. You thought to harm me. Hashem thought for the good, for the better. Look what happened as a result of you selling me into slavery. I became king, viceroy, king of the world. So how can I be angry? Now if you think about this, this is the ultimate expression, the ultimate expression of genuine faith. Because if there's anyone in the world that had a right to be angry at anyone, if there's anyone in the world that was a genuine victim, it was Yosef. He was so cruelly treated by his own brothers. He cried to them with heartfelt cries. And his brothers were so cruel, so cold-hearted. They just closed their heart and refused to listen to the pleas of the 17-year-old little kid, brother. They threw him to the snakes, ready to kill him. They threw him to the pit full of snakes. Then they sold him to slavery. As far as they were concerned, they would never see him again. Who knows what happened? And he was begging and pleading, how can you do this to me? And yet they shut their heart, they closed their heart. So if there's anyone in the world that has a right to be angry at anyone, it's Yais. And while it's true that Hashem orchestrated it and it all turned out to the good, that's a reason for Yosef to be grateful to Hashem. That's not a reason for Yosef to be grateful to his brothers. The logical position would be, my brothers show their true colors. In the moment of truth, they show what they are. They're a bunch of no goodniks. In the moment of truth, they were cruel. I, don't, I never want to see their face again. Hashem was kind to me. That's despite what the brothers did. So I'll thank Hashem. I'll be grateful to Hashem. I'll praise Hashem. But as far as my brothers are concerned... I don't want to see them ever again. But how did Yosef respond? He gave him the royal, carp- the royal treatment. He gave him the red carpet treatment. He invited them to Egypt. He gave them Goshen, the, 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 the fat of the land, the choices, the Upper East Side of Egypt. And he treated them royally and kindly. And genuinely, there was no grudge. He held no grudge. On the contrary, he loved them, he respected them, he treated them well. Why? And this is where real faith comes in. Here you see what Yosef is all about. Yosef was the epitome of genuine faith. Yosef tells his brothers, Eloikim chashav Hashem thought for the good. Everything that you did, while you chose badly, and you made a negative choice. But Hashem had other designs. Hashem was orchestrating the whole thing because this led to the ultimate goodness. So you are the instruments for something good. You are the divine instruments. You are Hashem's instruments for something divine, for something so good, something unexpected. 
So I'm grateful to you. Not only I'm grateful to Hashem. A person who says I'm grateful to Hashem, but I'm not grateful to the human being and I mistreat a human being is a person who doesn't have faith in Hashem. A person who has faith in Hashem ultimately has to be grateful to a human being and has to be nice to a human being. A person who hides behind his religion and his faith and is cruel to other human beings and is disrespectful and is cruel. He says, I have a relationship with God. People, they're all right. This is a person who has no faith. This is the ultimate test of faith. The ultimate test of faith is how you treat people. Because if you believe in Hashem, ultimately the people are Hashem's instruments. Even when the person is choosing and even when he's making a wrong decision and a wrong choice. But the fact is everything is by divine providence and this person is an instrument for, a divine instrument for Hashem's plan to unfold. And therefore, this is the sign if you truly have faith in Hashem. If you truly have faith in Hashem, then you have to thank the instrument as well. Not just believe in Hashem and thank Hashem. You have to thank the human being. So Yosef thanked the brothers, was grateful to the brothers. Instead of being jealous and bearing a grudge and being angry, he was genuinely grateful. He says, you, what you did, I ended up being the viceroy. Thank you. And he meant it. And he felt it. That's faith. Because ultimate faith is if you believe that everything that happens in this world comes from Hashem. And even the negative, everything comes from Hashem. And everything Hashem does ultimately is for the good. If you don't see it now, you'll see it later. Therefore, this person is a divine instrument for the, for the divine plan to unfold, for the divine plan for me to unfold. And if the divine is good, if you truly believe that everything comes from Hashem and Hashem is good, then you have to believe that this person is actually an instrument for something good. So how can I be angry? How can I be vengeful? How can I be jealous or angry? I have to be thankful and grateful. Yosef is a, is a biblical character that gives us, that's our, that's, that nourishes us in the times of famine, in a spiritual famine, when a person is facing such a challenge. When you're facing a human being who's obnoxious and, and that only evo- naturally evokes feeling of vengefulness and anger. And Yosef is the one who nourishes us, nurtures us, who teaches us. No, that's not the proper response. Dismiss it from your mind. Stop those thoughts. Don't be angry. Don't be jealous. On the contrary, be grateful and be thankful. Because he's a divine instrument for something divine. This is, this is the most powerful expression of faith. There's nothing more eloquent, nothing more powerful than this in the whole Torah, that how a person deals with, with a negative situation. But he didn't say it when he was in the pit. What? He said it when he was up here. He didn't say it when he was in the pit. <laughs> he was begging for his life. He was begging, pleading for his life. You know, a, a person should not be pacifist. We don't turn the other cheek. You have to pray, you have to storm heaven to avert the decree. That moment he can still avert the decree. So he was praying and begging and pleading to his brothers that they should save his life. So they were doing Hashem's will when they put him in the pit. They didn't know it, but... Everything that happens in this world ultimately is Hashem's will, especially something that affects another person. Now that doesn't take away from the person's responsibility and culpability and the person has to be punished and the person has to... But at the same time, this is the ultimate contradiction, the ultimate paradox between knowledge, foreknowledge, and choice. 
we have freedom of choice, and yet on the other hand, everything Hashem does, Hashem has a plan. There's a divine plan, a greater picture, a bigger picture that's unfolding with or without our awareness. Everything that happens in this world ultimately is part of the divine plan. So at the simultaneously, there's this great plan, master plan, that's happening simultaneously. At the same time, you have freedom of choice, and you're punished for making the wrong choices. Even though the result is, the result, ultimately, this is part of the plan. But nevertheless, you made that choice, and you didn't do this because of some divine plan. You did it because you're egotistical, because of your negative uh, traits, and therefore you, ha- you have to go through a purification process of your own in order to connect with the divine. So therefore you, you have to go through that purification process, a punishment, etc. You have to do teshuva. But the plan, on the other hand, the plan itself, the result itself is really divine. And you have to believe that. That's faith. Everything that happens in this world ultimately is divine. And therefore, a Jew should never feel dejected. A Jew should never feel depressed. No matter how dark things get. Even if we make the wrong choices. And we, we find ourselves in the deepest, deepest depth. In the deepest pits. Not just physical pits, but spiritual pits with snakes and scorpions. A place only snakes and scorpions can feel at home. A jungle. A spiritual jungle. And even if it's through our choice... Until you reach a level where you're like Pare, the king of Egypt, you're addicted. You can't even help yourself. A Jew should never feel lost or depressed, dejected. A Jew always has to be besimcha because you have to realize and remember ultimately everything is divine providence. And if Hashem allowed this situation to deteriorate to such a level that I should reach stoop to such a level, such a decadent low level, Obviously, everything is divine providence. I, Hashem wants me to elevate and to transform this situation and gave me the ability to do so. So instead of dwelling on the neg- negative, a person should really dwell on the bigger picture and the divine plan and make the most of it. Once you have lemon, make, make lemonade. Make the most of it and realize that there's a divine purpose. So, but never allow yourself to be depressed or to be down or to you know, just wallow in self-pity and and hopelessness. Uh, a Jew is never allowed to give up hope, no matter what. Never, ever, ever. A Jew always has to, has to realize Hashem is with us, no matter what happens. Yes, I made terrible choices, and yes, I'm responsible, and yes, I have to pay the price for it, and yes, I have to uh, correct it and mend it. But right now, there is a bigger <coughs> picture. There's a divine plan that I should find myself in this situation. I have to transform, I have to elevate, I have to do teshuva, I have to transform the darkness into light, the bitterness into sweetness, the negative into positive, the sin into mitzvah. That's my mission. And Hashem is with me, and He's helping me in this mission. So it, it is paradoxical. A person who's very square can't understand this, because it's, it's, it doesn't make sense. But it is paradoxical. This is divine reality, it's paradoxical. So this is the true meaning of faith. This is the ultimate test of faith. How do you deal with negativity? How do you deal with your emotional situation? Does your faith in Hashem help you? Is Hashem your therapist? Does Hashem help you deal with your negative emotions, with your jealousies and your envies and your hatreds and your hatreds and your anger and your rage? And if it doesn't, if Hashem is not helping you in that area in your life, then it's not real. Then the whole faith is, is an abstraction. You're not in touch with your faith. Yosef was the one who was the most in touch. He was the most in touch Jew ever. He was so in touch with Hashem 
that being king of the world, he was still in the Yosef HaTzadik. It's amazing. There's no one in the history that ever accomplished what the Yosef accomplished. Because Yosef was, that's why he was Yaakov's favorite son. Because he was the epitome of faith. He was the one who brought down the faith of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov into reality. Like no one else. He was king for 80 years. We don't find in the whole Tanakh, in the whole Bible, anyone who was a king for 80 years. Yosef was incredible. Yosef HaTzadik. The entire Jewish people are called Yosef for that reason. Mashiach ben Yosef is going to come from Yosef. Yosef was royalty. Because Yosef was so in touch with his faith. It was so deep. It was so profound. It was so real. And so internal and so genuine that he was able to withstand their temptation. Able to be immersed in the Egyptian culture and yet at the same time retain his righteousness and thrive in that society. And he was able to deal with all these emotional characteristics, all these negative um, angers and, and jealousies and and because his faith was so real, he was actually genuinely grateful for his brothers. And he treated them royal. It wasn't just mouthing words. He actually expressed it in real life. So that's why he says you learned it from Yosef. He's not just giving an example in the Torah, a nice example. This is, this is, Yosef is the one who gives us the strength to be able to accomplish this, this uh, ideal. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.